Kim is Managing Director and Investment Strategist at uh, KB Securities. Peter, thanks very much for your view uh, from Korea this morning. Also, a big thank you to our other guests on Money Talk, Andrew Ferris, uh, CEO of Ecognis Advisory, and Jack Xu, Chief Investment Officer, Greater China at uh, Credit Suisse. Just before we go, a look at the S&P ASX 200, uh, currently down three quarters of 1% at 7,156. Uh, looking at the weather, cloudy to overcast and cool with a few rain patches. Temperatures lingering at about 17 degrees during the day. Moderate north to northeasterly winds. Winds strengthening from the north at night. And temperatures falling to about 14 degrees in the urban areas. Uh, the outlook windy and becoming cold appreciably over the weekend. The weather fine, but temperatures falling to around 9 degrees in the urban areas on Sunday and Monday. Currently uh, 17 degrees Celsius, 90% uh, relative uh, humidity. Uh, after the news, uh, back chat with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. Uh, this is James Ross. Andrew Work will be with you uh, on Monday for uh, the continuing of uh, Money Talk. And I will see you tomorrow night at 10 past 6 for the greatest hits of music. Now with the news headlines, uh, here's Andrew. A secondary school principal says much of the content in new guidelines issued by the Education Bureau will already be known to teachers, so it shouldn't have a negative effect on morale. But Dion Chen, chairman of the Direct Subsidy Scheme Schools Council, did say teachers will need time to go through the guidelines, which includes suggestions that they promote national security and take care over what they post on social media. Mr. Chen told RTHK that teachers should understand that even in their personal capacity, they are still role models for students. He dismissed concerns that teachers may be encouraged to steer away from controversial topics depends on how they present the information to uh, students or uh, share in a school and also what the purpose of doing so. And uh, some of the so-called sensitive information or data basically a part of the curriculum. I think teachers, they understand how to present it or share with the students in a professional way. The majority of over 16,000 official documents about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963 have been released in full for the first time. The White House spokesperson, Corinne Jean-Pierre, said there were no redactions. President Biden believes all information related to President Kennedy's assassination should be released to the greatest extent possible, consistent with, again, national security. That's why he directed the acting archivist to conduct a supplementary six-month review of a subset of the remaining redacted records to ensure they are disclosed to the greatest extent possible. He also directed all remaining redacted information to be disclosed to the public when uh, the basis for the continued restriction of that information no longer outweighs the public interest. The British government has announced an inquiry into allegations that soldiers from a special forces unit murdered scores of unarmed civilians during night raids in Afghanistan between 2010 and 2013. It follows revelations by the BBC in July that the SAS had killed 54 people in suspicious circumstances. Joel Gunter was involved in that investigation. There was a pattern that emerged of detainees having surrendered to special forces troops only to then be killed. And operational reports by special forces would claim that the detainee had suddenly grabbed for a concealed weapon somewhere. And these claims were repeated. And they raised concerns even within special forces. BBC obtained internal documents that show that senior officers were concerned that there was a deliberate policy in effect to kill these needs.
Vladimir Putin has promised Russians he will keep the country's economy going despite despite wide-ranging Western sanctions. The Russian president said more gas would be sold to China and new trading partnerships developed in Asia, Africa and Latin America. Mr. Putin said Western countries would not achieve their objectives. Let me remind you that by introducing sanctions, Western countries were trying to push Russia to the periphery of world development. But we will never take the route of self-isolation. On the contrary, we are broadening and will broaden cooperation with all those who have an interest in that. The United Nations Human Rights Chief says Russian troops have killed hundreds of Ukrainian civilians in acts which may amount to war crimes. Volker Turk said UN monitors had documented more than 400 cases that occurred in just the first few weeks after Russia launched its military operation. In some cases, Russian soldiers executed civilians in makeshift places of detention. Others were summarily executed on the spot in their houses, yards and doorways. Even where the victim had shown clearly that they were not a threat, for example by holding their hands in the air. Investigators say they couldn't find a single case where any Russian soldier had been held accountable or punished for killing civilians. Pakistan and the Afghan Taliban have accused each other of starting unprovoked attacks near a border crossing. Pakistani officials say at least one person was killed and several were injured when Taliban guards fired mortar shells into their territory at the Chaman crossing. The BBC's Ambarasan Athirajan has more details. Pakistan says the Taliban opened fire while Pakistani forces were repairing part of a border fence. But a Taliban spokesman disputed that version of events, saying Pakistani soldiers fired first. The Afghan Islamist group has called for a dialogue to resolve tensions. It's the second such incident in recent days. Six Pakistani civilians were killed over the weekend in a clash between Afghan and Pakistani troops. Pakistan and the Afghan Taliban maintain a close relationship but tensions over security issues appear to have grown. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. This is Back Chat for Friday, December 16th. Welcome to the show. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Janice Wong. On today's Back Chat, we're talking about a new government scheme to import 3,000 elderly care home workers in the first year, leading up to a total of 7,000. They're aiming to tackle the shortage of labor in the sector. Currently, only private care homes can hire non-locals, but the new scheme will allow all care homes to do so. The Labor and Welfare Bureau said homes will have to employ at least one local for every non-local they hire. And they must also prove that they tried and failed to recruit all the staff they need locally before they can apply to import workers. While care home operators welcome the plan, unionists are upset and argue that staff shortages could be addressed by increasing salaries. More money or more people. If you have a better idea, post a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call at 233-88266. After 9.15, we'll look at a new survey to find out how much people are spending on presents this Christmas. And then at 9.25, RTHK sports correspondent Adam Chung will rock up with the latest on the World Cup as we head into the finals. But we're kicking off today's show. We've got three guests on. Uh, Stephanie Law, for the executive committee member from the Elderly Services Association of Hong Kong. Good morning, Stephanie. 
Good morning, Jennifer and Andrew. Hey, good morning. morning. We'd like to also welcome Jean Wu, the Emeritus Professor of Medicine at the Faculty of Medicine at CUHK, uh, also a director with the CUHK Jockey Club Institute of Aging. Good morning, Jean. Hi, good morning. Good morning. And we also welcome uh, Lam Chun Singh, who's the lawmaker from the Federation of Hong Kong and Kowloon Labor Unions. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. Hey, uh, great to have everybody on. Uh, Stephanie Law, let's kick off with you. Elderly services, that's what we're talking about today. That's what we do. Um, why is the government saying that we need to have these people and they are getting ready to cut red tape to let them in? So um, before COVID in these few years, um, the industry uh, on average, our shortage of frontline care staff has always been more than 20%. And uh, the pandemic has made it even harder uh, to hire locals. Um, so uh, under the new scheme, um, the care home industry welcomes the fast track scheme as it aims to uh, ease acute manpower shortage in the sector and cut down the processing time of applications from five months to two. So we expect that after Q2 next year, uh, we may be able to process more foreign labor applications to fill the labor gap. Uh, currently, there are 4,000 foreign laborers out of 150,000 care workers being hired in the market, serving around 480 private care homes. Uh, but uh, with the relaxation of this um, policy, uh, more than uh, 1,100 care homes will be eligible uh, to apply for foreign laborers. So there is going to be a uh, 3,000 new foreign uh, workers quotas in addition to the 4,000 foreign workers who are already being hired in the market. So at any one time, uh, the total foreign labor should not exceed 7,000 um, workers. Is this going to work? Um, is yes, this, this going to work? Because we've been down this road before, haven't we? Didn't we try to get more nurses in Hong Kong? A lot came over from the Philippines, but the language proved to be a problem. We couldn't get nurses from Guangdong province who spoke Cantonese. I mean, uh, are we, are we going to have the same problems? Uh, so this scheme has uh, actually, uh, the original scheme has already been in place for many years. And we have not seen a major problem in terms of the communication uh, because um, most of the uh, foreign laborers now being hired are from the Guangdong province and they can speak Cantonese. But of course, we place priority in hiring the locals first. Uh, but it's only uh, that because there is a big gap in the shortage of labor uh, that we have to hire the foreign laborers. And uh, Ms. Law, I mean, earlier this year, Hong Kong imported 8,000 temporary workers from the mainland to help take care of residents at uh, Hong Kong elderly and disabled homes. Can you tell us how that went? So uh, it is correct. Actually, the government has uh, tried to hire 3,000 um, uh, foreign laborers to uh, combat uh, COVID during, uh, you know, February when uh, there was a surge in COVID cases. Uh, so they have tried to hire uh, local workers as well uh, to offer them 30,000 uh, Hong Kong dollars per month, but uh, it wasn't uh, a success. Uh, uh, so because uh, at that time, um, they also opened the uh, foreign uh, labor policy uh, to uh, hire more people to come from uh, mainland China. And uh, it, it, was, it was okay uh, at that time to help uh, at the quarantine centers. Lam Chun Singh, yeah, we know you are not yeah. in favor of this plan. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, um, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, yeah. Now, now the government implement uh, new measures to uh, recruit more foreign labor in the care industry in Hong Kong. And of course, we understand that the aging population of Hong Kong will increase the demand for the elderly care home service. 
and also demand a lot of manpower in the elderly care home center. But I believe that for the elderly care home, uh, it's difficult for them to recruit workers, mainly because of the unattractive package, such as long, uh, low salary and long working hour, heavy workload, and especially for those private and self-financed elderly care homes. The monthly salary is only fourteen to fifteen thousand dollars, but the work is so tough, and the worker may choose to become a security guard instead of a care worker because of the same uh, salary level. And as you can see, under the fifth wave pandemic situation, the government uh, provide additional allowance to the care worker, two thousand dollars per month and $500 per day. And in fact, it can attract some of the local workers to join the industry. But after that period, and the salary of the care worker back to the normal, and, and some of the care worker moved to other industries. So if we can increase the salary and benefits, we can attract more local workers, especially the female, to join the workforce. And, and I think now, in fact, under the current situation, uh, the labor supplementary scheme of the labor department, there are near about 2,000 care workers came to Hong Kong under the scheme every year. So the private elderly care home can recruit uh, foreign labor under the scheme. And we also agree that, and we understand that the difficulties of the private elderly care home and in order to uh, alleviate the challenge of the manpower shortage of the care sector uh, under the fifth wave pandemic situation, the government exempt the requirement of recruiting foreign labor under the labor supplementary scheme mm. for three months. And at that time, more than 3,000 foreign labor joined the care industry in Hong Kong so I believe that it can already alleviate the manpower shortage problem. So that is a question that whether we continue to need to implement more measures to import the foreign labor, whether we can have a one-off measure to uh, achieve the aim and make a balance between the importation of labor and the local labor uh, employment opportunity. Okay, Jean Wu, uh, presumably they're studying some of this over at the Jockey Club uh, Institute of Aging. Where, where do you think the numbers lie? What, do we need more? Do we just bump the salaries and we'll have well, enough? Or? Well, I mean, I, um, I, I used to look after the elderly people from the residential care sector before I retired. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think it's all very well to talk about labor unions and salaries and so on, the, the fact remains that there are a lot of uh, increasingly dependent older people who are very, very old who increasingly need aspects of care, personal care, uh, um, because of, of the, the nature of, of, um, of our population. And it's much worse than like 20, 30 years ago. What we really need is some uh, actual up-to-date study of personal care requirements. If they cannot feed themselves, they cannot bath, they cannot change, they require nappy changes and all that. How many hours is uh, per person 
do you require to provide uh, reasonable care? Now, I mean, some 20 years ago, I did an estimate, and I can tell you that even in some of the hospitals, long stay, we don't fulfill that requirement. So if we, we're talking about good standard care, we're far, far short. I mean, 7,000, what we're talking about is just nothing. We're very, very deficient. Now, even the hospital authority, hospital care assistance to, to provide this kind of work, they, they are facing shortages. So all I would say is that Hong Kong is very, very short. Now, as regards raising pay, I would, I would ask, what is the level of pay that would induce people to work in this kind of profession, which is um, personal care. Now, many people don't want to do it, even if it's high pay. I mean, is it 20,000? Is it 25,000 or 30,000? What is it? Before we keep saying, you know, we, we can increase pay. Now, I can draw a parallel with the foreign domestic helpers. A lot of uh, families now employ foreign domestic helpers to look after uh, older people at home with exactly the same condition and what is their pay what is their living condition um, so you see, you see they, they're no different from the workers in the residential care homes um, so I think this um, I think first we've got to focus on the need I think the government estimate is far far below the, the, the requirement for uh, decent quality care um, and then as for pay, I don't know. See, if, if you have people who, um, who would not do it, we, we can do a study. <laughs> um, so if I pay you 25000 would you do it? I mean, it's just a kind of, you know, a work that people don't want to do. Um, it's not uh, just a question of pay. Yeah, I mean, presumably if you were getting paid 30000 a month, you would probably want to do it in an office or doing something a little less strenuous. It's, it's, it's a pretty tough job, yeah? Well, it's unattractive because you're dealing with uh, smelly people who incontinent and who vomit. Up. A lot of them are demented and they you know, they shout at you and so on. And it, it's just, you know, people c cannot cope with that kind of situation. Yeah, Lam Chun Singh, what do you, what, how do you respond to that? I mean, it sounds like yeah, no, no amount of money is going to attract Yeah, yeah, and, and I... I would like to add a point that when we're talking about the care industry in Hong Kong, we divide it into two parts. And one is the self-finance and private elderly care home. And another type is the subvented, the government subvented elderly care home. And of course, we understand the difficulties of the private and self-finance elderly care home. But on the other side, we believe that the subvented elderly care home can have the ability to increase the benefit and attract the local worker. And no need for them to recruit the foreign labor and leaving the job opportunity for the local workers. Um, because uh, and, and many subvented elderly care homes receive a lump sum grant from the government. And also the government increased the salary points for uh, the care workers in, in the sub uh, in, in the subvented uh, elderly care home, and but because of the lump sum grant system, and the employer may not pay that salary to the care worker, mm. and the salary is lower than the government point. But now the government allows the subvented uh, elderly care home to import uh, one foreign worker, but need to recruit two local labor. But, uh, but now, according to the statistics 
department information, and the manpower shortage of the care industry is around about 70%. This means the vacancy rate is about uh, 17%. So we suggest that um, maybe the suspended elderly care home can recruit uh, one foreign worker, but need to recruit five local workers. That the ratio is five to one. And I think that can the balance between the importation of labor and and local labor uh, working opportunities. That's the situation of the suspended elderly care home. Right, but when you when you look at the economics of it, if if you just say okay, let's raise the the, uh, the let's raise the salaries for the people working there, but I mean, does that mean less money for cleaning the facilities? Does it mean less money for upgrade of the furniture, the repair, the air conditioning systems? Uh, you know, they get old and decrepit. Uh, I mean, who you know, is, is the government just going to throw money at unlimited money at this, especially at a time when they've been running deficits and might want to get back in the black? I mean, Stephanie Law. Uh, has anybody worked out the economics of this and where other cuts will have to be made if these salaries go up? So, actually, I would like to point out that uh, for $14,000, uh, that's for the uh, foreign labor. Uh, but for, uh, you know, local labor, it's already in the level of 16000 to uh, 18000 at least, I would say. So some would be, like, exceeding $20,000 per month. Uh, but we still uh, have a uh, difficulty of uh, hiring locals. I think um, it's also important to note that there will be a surge of uh, care home supplies, uh, so there will be more uh, government-subsidized res- uh, residential care home places, around 6,200 in the upcoming five years. So uh, we are talking about, you know, not only uh, getting the numbers, um, you know, correctly, but also uh, how to, you know, uh, increase the uh, local uh, professional professionalism uh, in the long-term care, like as uh, Dr. Jean Woods uh, talked about, um, it is important uh, for our government to have a long-term, um, you know, uh, 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 planning for for our labors, uh, because uh, you know, aging population is not only talking about care homes, but also the community, and we will need much more professionals to serve the field. So, when we say professional, are these people with university degrees? I mean, are they are they nurses? Are they registered nurses? Are they you know putting in catheters and uh, you know giving people medicines and things like that, or are they more akin to cleaning staff and you know pushing people around in wheelchairs? So for the care home, um, you know, this scheme is all talking about the personal care workers. So they're talking about all the uh, feeding, cleaning, and um, uh, helping the elders for their uh, everyday, uh, you know, uh, daily activities. University degree holders. Uh, no, uh, it's not. only a secondary school uh, a graduate required. Okay, I mean, because yeah. it, it still doesn't sound like a lot of money, whether it's fourteen or sixteen thousand or eighteen thousand. Doesn't sound like a lot of money for a lot of heavy lifting and dealing with body fluids. Um, well, it's actually uh, for um, this industry um, where we're talking about a lot of the workers uh, that are um, uh, not uh, uh, secondary uh, level. So. Um, we also expect that they have a, uh, it's important to give them like a career pathway as well. So uh, for foreign laborers and uh, local laborers, we do think that there are two different career pathways. But in terms of the, uh, you know, long-term uh, career ladder, we do think that it's important uh, if we could have like a long-term care academy to train the industry's own labor. So that rather than, you know, some piecemeal training program initiatives, uh, Currently, there, there can be a better plan talent pool from the local market. What What is the career path for somebody who's a 
you know, performing this role in a long-term care home? So uh, it is going to be frontline staff uh, at the moment, but uh, we do see, you know, there are going to be seniority uh, as they work, uh, you know, longer years uh, at the care home. So it can be, you know, senior, uh, you know, uh, care staff or like a head of a, in charge of the uh, frontline care staff. And those people, wouldn't, wouldn't those people normally require a business degree or something along those lines? Um, uh, no, but uh, I think the uh, you know the operators they can offer them uh, different uh, trainings and uh, programs to uh, level up uh, their skill sets uh, to get to uh, a more senior role. Lam Chun Singh, do you, do you think this is realistic? Can somebody start off at a fourteen to sixteen thousand dollar a month job doing this kind of thing and then ele- elevate themselves to maybe a managerial role, making fifty or sixty thousand towards the end of their career? I mean, is that realistic? And I, I think, of course, uh, uh, the government and, and, and for the supplemented uh, elderly care home, uh, in fact, the government uh, increased the wages for them. And as you can see, uh, under the fifth wave pandemic situation, uh, under the fifth wave pandemic situation, uh, in order to attract more workers to join the care industry, and the government provide additional allowance and $2,000 per month and, and $500 per day. And the government also organized many retraining programs uh, for the workers, let them, they can join the care industry. At that time, uh, there are so, uh, several thousand people to apply the post. So uh, as we can see, if we can increase uh, our salary to maybe about uh, uh, 20,000, uh, uh, we, we can attract more worker to join the industry. But I yeah, think, yeah, but is it realistic uh, that there's a career path or are they just going to keep making and, 16, 18 a month, you know, maybe adjusted and, for inflation? Yes, uh, well, actually, I would like to. Sorry, yeah, maybe Stephanie, like can you add, answer that? Yeah, I would like to add that there is a role called the healthcare worker, yeah. uh, health worker, actually. So this is like a senior role of personal care worker, but it's an other required licensing. So this could be the, you know, the, the senior, uh, uh, yeah, uh, the role for these uh, personal care workers to advance. And right now, there are some programs uh, for, you know, younger workforce to join or women uh, retrained from other industries. But then a lot of these uh, programs have seen a shortage in, in their recruitment. So uh, it's a question of how effective uh, these programs are for the industry. Well, Jean Wu, you're an academic. Uh, how is Hong Kong tooled up to educate people to bring them into this prof- these professions? Well, <clears throat> I think uh, many of the things that have been mentioned have been tried. Um, so, for example, the Chinese university started a, um, a degree course in uh, gerontological nursing and it recruited people from from school um, and the idea was that you trained uh, your career path is to work in residential care setting um, and uh, so, so there's a profession uh, but then the, many of them ended up um, not working in that sector they they then did further courses and then became nurses um, so I, I think, and then there have been several several of these uh, attempts. So I think that the the obstacle is really uh, the ultimately the salary level is stuck. I mean, if you're washing dishes in a restaurant, 
you know, you, you, your your uh, career path is limited if, if you uh, have great aspirations. Um, and the other thing is the nature of the job. It's increasingly unattractive. Um, the, so, and I want to come back to this economic side. Who's going to pay? Let's say... Let's say if you give somebody 30,000 and they're willing to uh, give people body washes and so on. Now, even nurses, a lot of these tasks are delegated to healthcare workers in the hospitals. So, so the, high, the, the more educated you are, the less likely you're going to want to do this type of thing. Uh, the, now, who's going to pay for it, uh, assuming that this exists? And the, the, it's the affordability of elderly care. You cannot uh, rely on government because of the low taxation system. Where is the money going to come from? It has to come from the user. So you can have a, a sliding scale, but eventually better quality care equates with more money being paid out of pocket. This is the, the situation all over the world. Now, um, if, if you look at if you look at do a tour of nursing, unless the government takes up everything, which which it can't, and its current taxation system, it's very difficult to get uh, improvement. Uh, they they try various encouragement, like um, get, getting a, a sort of star system, quality star from the Hong Kong Association of Gerontology. You know, if you fulfil certain requirements, you get certain number of stars so people can choose right right um and then they use incentive schemes like voucher scheme if um uh, you know c certain residential care homes um if they meet certain quality government can give you uh, uh, more a, a little bit of a bonus and gene yeah. i'm gonna have to ask you to hold that thought because yeah. we have to break for the news i do want to thank uh lam chun singh the lawmaker from the federation of hong kong and kowloon labor unions for coming on will not be joining us after the news but we will have our other guests on so please stay tuned for that the weather is 17 degrees celsius 90 percent humidity and it looks like it'll be there for the rest of the day okay. And we're back on Back Chat with Janice Wong and me, Andrew Work. We're also joined by Stephanie Law, the Executive Committee Member for the Elderly Services Association of Hong Kong, and Jean Wu, uh, Emeritus Professor of Medicine at CUHK's Faculty of Medicine and also a Director with the CUHK Jockey Club Institute of Aging. Uh, we were and are going to continue talking about the importation of labor to work in elderly care homes. Um, and I have a question for both of you. If you were a middle or lower income Hong Konger, looking forward to your retirement in Hong Kong five, ten years from now, would you want it to be in Hong Kong? Or do you think people should start making plans to go somewhere else, like maybe have arrangements in Guangdong or the Philippines? How bad are, are things going to get here? Stephanie, you want to take first crack at that? Uh, yes. Um, so I see that uh, there is a trend of um, uh, elders, uh, you know, um, uh, Obviously, their um, uh, children are migrating to other countries and, uh, you know, left them, uh, you know, in Hong Kong because of the worries of uh, care. Uh, they would send them to the care homes. And um, but uh, unfortunately, for some of the uh, care staff, uh, especially for professionals, we have seen uh, most of, you know, the, uh, you know, like uh, occupation therapists, uh, or uh, physical therapists or nurses, uh, they are also uh, moving away from Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so there are two sides of uh, the story. We see that there is uh, 
need of you know taking care of more elders in Hong Kong because of the growing aging population, um, and also uh, community support for the elderly are still you know under a uh, you know development. Uh, more of the elderly centers are being um, you know uh, built, but. Uh, the long-term care facilities are uh, catering to uh, towards uh, people that are more frail and uh, people that uh, perhaps, uh, for example, if they have you know dementia or other issues that require more professional uh, care services. So stay or go? Do you think people? Um, for elderly, I think there is a trend for them to stay. Yes. Okay, but if you're lower middle... of the language and everything, they, they are more um, comfortable uh, of living in Hong Kong. Right, okay. So I'm not talking about rich people because, you know, they'll sort things out. Um, Jean Wu, what do you think? If you're lower middle income uh, Hong Konger, you know, looking to your final years, should you stay or do you think you're probably better off yeah, somewhere I mean, else? Uh, I, I would definitely stay because Hong Kong is a very compact city. You can get around public transport and the, the shop, shops and, and everything compared to many, many other countries. So you can remain independent uh, in daily living for a bit longer. However, I would also need to save up a lot of money for long-term residential care because if I, if I have a period of like five five years or more, five to ten years of dependency before I die, you cannot rely on your relatives. And who's going to look after you when you can't uh, cook and you can't uh, walk and so on? So, uh, And that costs money. Um, uh, I think our residential care sector is, is improving, but it needs money. <laughs> uh, and so... I mean, it's a fact of life, I think. I mean, I mean, this this is my question: Will the money be there, or would you be better off? Would you get more more better treatment for uh, on a tight budget if you went oh, to the okay. Philippines um, or Guangdong? Um, I think uh, best place to go is Scotland because uh, right now you can get it for free re residential care in in England. Uh, it costs about. 120,000 pounds per year for a decent quality home because uh, the, the government uh, it's very difficult to get government support um, but how do you call how do you qualify for that don't you have to be Scottish um, I'm not sure I haven't explored that maybe I will <laughs> I don't know how they afford it but that's the last I heard when I looked at it uh, in Guangdong um, now they're, they're living spaces are, are fine and in fact the government said well, why don't all the older people go to Guangdong they right? tried that yeah the, the, the problem is the medical care so you, you cannot just have social care as you get more dependent you have to see doctors more with, with various illnesses and, and you have to take drugs and then emergencies happen you fall and you fracture and who's going to pay I mean, you, you have to come back to Hong Kong for, for the, the, the essentially free medical care so, so that so China does not work purely because you need medical support. I mean, so um, we, we kind of have to make it work here. We they, they tried to get people to cross the border and go to care homes, and that, that never really took off, did it? No, 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 it didn't, because they tried it years ago. Yeah. And they, they used to have it just north of the border. And every time they have emergency, ambulance cross back the border, go to North District Hospital for mm -hmm. their follow-up, for their free medication, and so on. So, uh, yeah, unless they solve that problem, it's, it's just a, a, a nice... No story, but I think the thing to do is to expand this sector in Hong Kong itself. 
um, like Stephanie is, is doing, providing good value for money, have, have homes that people save up money for. You, you can't have everything for free. And, mm-hmm. and the government is t- taking a lead in, in these uh, residential care vouchers. That's a good thing. I think all these things are in place, but ultimately we, we just need to all save a bit more money yeah. Uh, old age. <laughs> Stephanie, are, do you think we're broadly on track in Hong Kong? Is, is the 7,000 care workers going to be enough? The, the residential vouchers going to be enough? Or do you think we are facing a dire situation? Yes, uh, it is actually a quite um, uh, dire situation because um, we're not talking about, you know, the current situation, but there is going to be a, a uh, surge in the baby boomers, you know, uh, getting older and they will need, you know, community support and also residential care home support. Um, so uh, you've talked about uh, the Guangdong uh, uh, scheme, uh, which the government has already had uh, tried in, in the past years uh, to have, you know, enhanced workplace scheme uh, in place for two uh, residential care homes operating in uh, uh, yeah, in, in, in mainland China right now by the NGOs, uh, by the, yeah, NGOs. And um, we've, we are seeing that, you know, of course, the, uh, uh, the, the cost of, you know, uh, uh, establishing these homes or uh, the running cost of it may be lower in mainland China so that the enhanced what scheme could be even, you know, more uh, re- reasonable in price um, to operate in China. So. There has been, you know, discussions going on uh, to attract uh, uh, operators to open uh, up, uh, you know, care homes in China as well. But for Hong Kong, I do think that uh, there are a few, you know, pain points we have to tackle, um, including, you know, the uh, not enough uh, land uh, or space to open new care homes. And the development time of care homes has been, you know, long. Uh, it, it takes uh, five to ten years to redevelop or develop new homes. So, um this is uh, the situation that we're facing. But uh, with the residential care voucher, that is like a co-payment, um, uh, you know, system uh, where uh, everyone, you know, in Hong Kong, they can, you know, apply uh, no matter what your uh, income level is. There are, there are like seven uh, different levels uh, that you could uh, seek for a co-payment from the government and yourself. So I think this is the trend that, you know, majority of people uh, that can consider uh, you know, in Hong Kong, as they age. Right. So, Ms. Law, you, you said uh, that it's a dire situation, and uh, so does that mean you you agree with uh, what uh, Professor Wu was saying earlier? That uh, seven thousand care workers is uh, it's just uh, far from enough. Uh, I would say uh, seven thousand. Uh, it, it's a it's a start. Like three thousand quarter uh, for for next year because we already have four thousand. Uh, there is still room for more flexibility for operators, as uh, you know. Um, there are going to be more homes that are eligible. So the authority will have to closely monitor the trends. Uh, if the quotas run out very quickly next year, they may have to adjust the quotas because 3,000 is not a lot if we divide it by, you know, 1,100 care homes. And therefore, you know, 700, uh, 7,000 filling at any one time uh, should be, uh, you know, continuously reviewed. Why temporary? I mean, why are these temporary workers? It's not like the old people are going anywhere. I mean, we're, we're only getting more, well, they go somewhere eventually. But we're only getting more of them. I mean, why are we not creating uh, permanent positions so people can come and, you know, be more attractive for people to come to Hong Kong and where they know they have some confidence they're going to be around for a while, can build a life here? I mean, is, is the temporary name we're putting on this a political move? Should we be giving these people a, 
uh, you know, permanent residence? So uh, right now, um, it is operated under like a two-year contract, and they can renew uh, uh, after uh, every two years. Uh, so this is uh, uh, similar like uh, the domestic care help, uh, domestic helper scheme. So uh, of course, in the future, if we would like to attract more of these foreign laborers or talents, or even if we are talking about you know professionals like uh, you know nurses. Uh, from foreign countries or in the East Asian countries, I do think that uh, we can uh, consider more, you know, favorable measures to attract them to Hong Kong. Mm, I see. Jean Wu, what do you think? Uh, should we make it more attractive for people to come here permanently and, and I guess maybe even bring their families with them? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, because we, we've tried with the local situation for a number of years, and uh, but, but there might be people who... Um, in other countries who've done this for a long time and found job satisfaction. And I think we ought, ought to attract, there must be uh, people like that, uh, sort of dedicated people, um, because we have no other, no other strategy, I think. Uh, you know, not, not restrict them, uh, but they, you know, some of them might be quite uh, interested in dementia care, for example. If you have a specialized theme of running residential care, you have some expertise, you can train the workers how to communicate with de people with dementia, uh, how to um, create activities, get people out of their shell, and so on. It requires a certain kind of skill, and you've got to have a leader to, to, to do that. Um, and there just aren't enough people, trained people in Hong Kong, to meet the, the demand mm. of, of our aging population. Gotcha. And one little twist I want to put on this, uh, a friend of mine, when his father needed to go into a home, he had dementia and he forgot how to speak English, He, which he had spoken for over 60 years and he could only speak Ukrainian. They were able to find a choice of six different Ukrainian language nursing care homes in Toronto. Um, but in Hong Kong, do we have services for people who only speak Putonghua or English? Uh, are they going to be enough services for those people? Oh, that's that's a real deficiency. I mean, uh, people who spoke English and not Cantonese, um, when when they get old in Hong Kong, really, there's only just one, the China Coast community in Kowloon to cater for them. Mm. Um, and uh, some daycare facilities accept them, uh, but they're one among, let's say you have one to 20, and so, some get on with others, so sometimes it works, but... It, it, they don't have that same kind of stimulus. So I think um, if we're going to, I think a lot of people like to stay and grow old in Hong Kong. I think uh, there's increasing demand for, in that area as well. Gotcha, and Putonghua? Um, yeah, Putonghua as well. I mean, maybe we should recruit from Singapore, you know? <laughs> they seem to be more multilingual there um, in, in the nursing homes. So, uh, so I, I think. It, um, so they they're just going to have to go in and hope somebody <laughs> get pick a nursing home where they have well, enough multilingual staff. Right, right now it's no different from people being cared for at home by their relatives with mm. foreign domestic helpers, right? Sure. I mean, the communication is just if you're lucky, you might get some. It's all sign language. You get a lot of friction, a lot of problems. Sure. Uh, but it, it's exactly the same same situation. Mm. Uh, People now stay at home and they're very demented, and then you get a couple of two or three Filipinas. Uh, uh, that's, that's not, and then they leave quite 
soon because they can't stand it and there's a rapid turnover and uh, yeah, I sort of create a lot of stress. Yeah. Right, and just uh, finally, uh, Professor Wu, um, when you were talking earlier about uh, um, elderly uh, people from Hong Kong who, who uh, may be able to enjoy services across the mainland at uh, elderly care homes uh, on the mainland, um, you mentioned about uh, difficulties in getting uh, medical help for them when they need it. Um, what about uh, working with, uh, for example, University of Hong Kong, uh, Shenzhen Hospital? Is that a possibility that there can be a more cooperation like that? Yeah, um is it, during COVID, there was an arrangement where you can get your chronic medication from hospital authority through through the Shenzhen Hong Kong U Hospital. I read in the papers. Um, it, it, it is, you it, it set up a mechanism where if you're a Hong Kong resident, uh, you're entitled to this medical care. Somehow this can be sort of exported to wherever you're staying. Um, so for your regular medication, that that would be a great help for follow up. But then the mainland healthcare system, uh, you still have to follow that, and and that involves payment. It's 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 payment, and people get insurance. You, you don't have insurance, so you have to pay. And then if emergencies happen, let's say you have a minor stroke, you, you're not going to travel four hours. To, to Hong Kong, you're going to end up in the mainland hospital. Then who's going to pay for that? I think all these are very practical issues. Now, if you get some statistics about how the frequency of, of this need uh, according to their health condition, you might have some idea of the magnitude of the, of the uh, uh, problem. Well, but we, we haven't really done that. Well, I guess we all think we're going to end up there. And uh, I guess the message is uh, more, more money means more choices. So everybody starts yeah. saving. Uh, thank you very much to <laughs> Stephanie Law, Executive Committee Member of the Elderly Services Association of Hong Kong, and Jean Wu, Emeritus Professor of Medicine, Faculty of Medicine at CUHK with the Jockey Club Institute of Aging. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. All right, back chat and uh, gearing up for a little bit of Christmas shopping. Um, I tend to think of it as a family thing. Yeah, me too. Yes. But apparently other people are looking at the romantic angle. There might be some pressure. Arky Lau is a matching consultant with HK Romance Dating. And they did a survey looking at, uh, you know, stepping it up with some, some gifts for your, your somebody you're courting. Uh, Arky Lau, uh, tell us a little bit about some of the, the highlights of the survey that you've done. Oh, hi. Morning. morning. <laughs> yep. Actually, the, the shopping habits is a little bit um, similar to last year, actually. I found that a lot of guys and girls are going to spend around around 1000 to $3,000 on Christmas days, and they're going to spend most of the money, like uh, half of them, like $1,000 to $2,000 on spending, buying gifts for the other half. Okay, so there, there, this is now you're, you're looking, you're asking people about this in terms of buying gifts for a romantic uh, partner or a romantic target, maybe. Is that right? Yeah. You're that's not, true, you, that's you're true. not asking people how much you're going to spend on your kids. Like, uh, no, how much you're going to spend on your partner, boyfriend, just your partner, girlfriend, or like, like gifting, like a yacht. <laughs> for oh. the other mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, gotcha. And this, this one thousand to three thousand, are the are the numbers going up from from earlier years? Or are they going? Are they on the down? Are they on the, down, are they um, on the up? How are people feeling? They're going up a little bit, just a little bit. Yeah, because they are um, uh, better than last year because they are thinking um, because they've been uh, spending a lot of time in Hong Kong right now. So they rather uh, they and also because of the consumer voucher. 
they're a little bit of um, a funding. So that's why they are like, okay, we can we can spend a little more on the gift on the Christmas. Oh, that's time. a good that's a good reminder. If you're getting your money through Octopus today, is the day you can rock up to the Seven Eleven and get your get your next thousand bucks. <laughs> I'm going to straight from the studio, going to get my money and buy something for my wife. Janice? Right, and then. Um, Yes, and Akilao, I'm kind of interested in a, um, one of your surveys finding. It says what, 15% of men and 29% of women, they don't plan to get any gifts for their loved ones. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct too. <laughs> did, you, did you find out why? Um, well, actually, every year it's similar. The, 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 I mean, the ratio is similar. Right. Um, is, yeah, this, and- is it they don't love them very much or this, or is this like an anti-materialistic thing? Um, they are just because some of them they are um, kind of worried about the future because of the economy, uh, and they they're worried about like their job security and everything, and so that's why some people are uh, uh, like are more uh, serious and more more um, cautious in, in buying gifts, especially girls. You find that girls' numbers is like girls are not going to buy more gifts for the, the, the guys. <laughs> Valentina, Valentina Tudos, a dating and relationship coach, uh, a semi-regular on a back chat. Good morning to you. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? Good, good. I'm doing fine. And uh, maybe my wife might even get me something for Christmas. Let's see. Is, is there, is there, is there, is there, like, what's, the, what's, the, you know, I've been married for so long. What, what is the dynamic or the pressure on, on uh, people that are dating? to buy gifts at Christmas time. Is there, is, there, is there a lot of pressure on this now or how are people taking it? I think it really depends on the stage that relationship is in. Like you've been dating for three months or six months for a year. These days people don't jump into marriage that quickly. So sometimes they date for a few years. Um, I think that is one of the aspects that influences whether you are getting a gift or not. Um, as the previous speaker was saying, I think... Um, society expects men to gift more than women so if a man is dating a girl and especially if the girl's love language is gifts one of the five love languages then uh, there is certainly an expectation that he would show his love and appreciation for her through gifts Um, I know a lot of men who also love gifts but uh, it's not surprising that in the survey uh, men prefer electronic products and women prefer jewelry it's a bit of a no-brainer somehow um but yes i would say that in my experience there are certain expectations in the first stages of dating in the first one or two years that uh christmas will christmas and birthdays and valentine's days will come with a gift gotcha archilao uh what what are the hot gifts this year like what for romantic couples is there is there did you survey people on that have you got a sense of that well, I found that girls, most of them, they love jewelry. Like every year, um, the first top <laughs> the gift idea, the best one is to receive jewelry. Yeah, and that's the that's the best part. <laughs> so, if guys, if guys are planning on spending between a thousand to three thousand dollars, according to your survey, is that enough for a decent piece of jewelry? Um, for those, um, not like those, um, not like diamonds and something like that, but for some fun piece, stylic and chic kind of piece um, you can still find it in the market <laughs> okay valentina what happens when uh, expectations are not met from a suitor <laughs> well actually um well guys you have to be very cautious sometimes when you buy gifts you have to maybe take her shopping and see what like turn her eyes on and and, and then you secretly buy it for her <laughs> that uh, would be better yeah, my, my wife better. just gives me the invoice after she bought it 
<laughs> That's her solution. She's like, this is what you are getting me for Christmas. Done. <laughs> yeah. So, and for True. guys, they, um, every year, they seem to be uh, uh, very liking to receive those um, electronic products, like phones or phones related or audios and something like that. I got, Every year, similar. Yeah, I got one of those. I'm I'm, I'm aiming for some uh, bone induction waterproof running earphones. That's my that's my number one for this year. Oh, that's pretty good. I already yeah. know what I'm going to get for my Christmas too. Yeah. <laughs> you got your husband all sorted. It, it's a, it's a, no. I'm. He already told me I'm getting a fountain pen. Oh, <laughs> but that's only pen. because he likes fountain pens. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, yeah, you like them, and then you want to buy something for your other house. Right. <laughs> Maybe hinting he wants you to write you some more love letters. Well, thank you very much from from uh, dementia and our declining years to gift buying at Christmas. We're mixing it up here today on Back Chat. Thanks to Arky Lau, matching consultant from HK Romance Dating and Valentina Tudos, dating and relationship coach. Uh, we're getting ready now for a little bit of World Cup excitement with Adam Jung. You're listening to Back Chat. Call us on two double three double eight two double six and have your say. All right, Adam, we're just going to go straight to you. <laughs> yeah. I have screwed up the music for today, and I guess we'll have to get it back on Monday and do it right because that today's your p- penultimate uh, your penultimate World Cup update, right? The last one will be on Monday? That's right, yeah. So the big event is on Sunday. It's the World Cup final between France and Argentina. Uh, lots of storylines ahead of this one. Uh, I, I get the sense that a lot of casual football fans are really rooting for Lionel Messi. Uh, so... He is uh, going for his first World Cup uh, and a third for Argentina. Uh, he's never won a World Cup before. He's, he's won everything in, in football. Champions League, Spanish League, everything. So this is the only thing that's missing from his resume. So he's going for that. Uh, Argentina looking to go back on top since last winning the Cup in 1986. And uh, if they do uh, win it, they will match uh, Italy uh, with three and uh, one more than Uruguay. Uh, in the South American continent. As for France, uh, they're trying to become the first defending champions since Brazil did it in 1962. Um, they're also looking for their third cup. And uh, I think if they do win, it, it, it does add to the legacy of their coach, Didier Deschamps, because that means he'll have been involved with three uh, World Cup wins for France, because he was wow. part of that 1998 team with wow. Zinedine Zidane and... Oof. Thierry Henry, Marcel Desailly, that, that was a great team. That's a deep cut on the history there. Uh, and what are, the bo- what are the bookies calling for this one? Where, who, where are the, uh, who are the odds favor? <laughs> I think this is even. I really, really do. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's a, a, a bit of a leaning towards Argentina a little bit, just because I think they play better throughout the tournament compared to France. Because... Before France won their uh, semifinal game against Morocco, they'd always let in a goal. They never kept a clean sheet mm. until the, that uh, 2-0 win over Morocco. So, but I, I think for the general observer, this is really close because France has a lot of famous names, star names playing for big clubs in Europe. Whereas Argentina, you've got Lionel Messi and also the emergence of players like Julian Alvarez and Alexis uh, McAllister, who are providing great support in the midfield for Messi. Which team has gelled better over the course of the tournament? I mean, like, yeah, sometimes the stars can pull you through. 
But I mean, to win the World Cup, man, you got to gel as a team. Yeah, I have to say it's Argentina for that one. Yeah, yeah, the better better team players. Just because, the, and also they overcame some adversity. They lost their first game to Saudi Arabia, and people were going nuts about that. So uh, they found different combinations. I think starting Alvarez up front instead of Lautaro Martinez it is a great uh, chemistry uh, between Alvarez and, and Messi. So that's working for them. They've also discovered uh, some combinations in the midfield with uh, Rodrigo De Paul and uh, Enzo Fernandez supporting Messi. Whereas France, they've got a lot of big names, but they had a lot of injuries in the build-up to the tournament, and they've had to start different players in different mm -hmm. games. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what Deschamps does uh, in this game. Uh, obviously, you've got your big uh, forwards up front with Olivier Giroud and Kylian Mbappe, but then the back four, they've had different combinations. In the last game, we saw Ibrahim Kenyatte starting in place of uh, Daya Opakamano. Uh, I thought Kenyatte played really well, and I don't know if Deschamps is going to go back to him or going back to his regular. So, uh, you know, as we close this one out here, and then we'll have you back on Monday for the dissection of the, the final game. What's, so the bookies say even. What do you say? Who? I like Argentina. Put you on the spot, Adam. Yeah, you, sure. you like Argentina. I'll step on the spot. I like Argentina. And I think this game could end the Messi versus Ronaldo debate. Who's the GOAT? Who's the best of all time? Sure, Ronaldo's got more international goals, more Champions League titles. But Messi, he's gone to the final twice, and he could win it on Sunday. All right. Well, Adam, uh, I'm going to give you one more link on the numbers. It could be good luck for Argentina. The last time they won was in 1986. Also, the last time, you know I'm going to have to do this, the last time <laughs> Canada qualified exactly. for the World Cup. So the Canada's qualification could be just a little bit of extra luck that Argentina meets. Adam Jung, our World Cup man. Adam, I, I messed up your intro, but I'm not going to deny it to you. So we're going to go out on your World Cup personal music. Right, that was uh, Adam Jung uh, giving us our World Cup update, picking Argentina. I'm Andrew Work, and I've been on today with Janice Wong. Thanks for joining me again, Janice. You're welcome. Uh, thank you very much, everybody, for calling and getting in touch online. Today's show was produced by Yuki Tsong. Our sound man today is Andy. Next, uh, don't forget to tune in Monday. We're going to have Danny Giddings and Mike Rouse back on. Uh, the temperature is going to hang around 17 degrees.